Welcome to Above the Mess, the podcast where we bounce between our interests, dive down rabbit holes, navigate our brains, and come up in Wonderland. I'm Izzy Miller, and with me is Maddie Van Houten. Hello. Hey, Maddie. What's on your mind today? Oh, um, you know, the end of the world. Um, uh, or same. the end of my current world. Yeah? Yes. So, like, you know, the world in general is going to end one day. If it's not by us, it's by the sun swallowing the earth whole. But <laughs> my goal is not to be here for that. I think we're pretty set. Like, what is it? Five billion years in the future? Something like that. Something like that. The current world, though, my current world, when I say that, what I mean is all I have been thinking about for the last like month and a half is native plants and my woodland project and gardening. And the reason I've been thinking about it is because spring has started and it's gorgeous outside. So I've been hyper fixated on it. But Izzy, hyper fixations end. And I know if I don't do some kind of weird planning to deal with this, my veggie garden is going to suffer until my brain is like, oh, yeah, we have veggies outside. I have experienced this before. (laughs) I have experienced this frequently and repeatedly throughout my entire life. It is amazing how into a hobby I can get or a new interest and then suddenly one day my brain just doesn't want to play with that anymore. This is like this is a recurring theme in my life as well. Like I will get really into something for, you know, it could be six months. It could be six days. It could be, you know, a couple hours. And then all of a sudden my brain goes, nope, I'm done. I'm done. I, I can't. I can't anymore. And it, it doesn't even have to be a hobby. It can be like, I really like Chex Mix for like six weeks. And then I want to puke if I think about it. For me recently, it's been terrarium videos on YouTube. I've been loving watching people build like aquariums and ty- and terrariums and putting fish and reptiles in them. And there's going to be a day probably in like a week or so. I'm just like, I don't want to watch these anymore. Yep. Yep. I've done that too with YouTube videos. Uh, my favorite YouTube channel for a really long time was Cracking the Cryptic. Oh my goodness. I just stumbled over their name. Cracking the Cryptic, where they just solve in like super complicated Sudoku puzzles. I was watching them every day for like, I don't know, weeks. And then just one day, nope, no more. I might go back, but not right now. (laughs) It is definitely one of those things where like, because the reptiles, like, probably Mm -hmm. not a good thing to get a lizard and then realize that I'm not interested in lizards anymore. The YouTube videos are a lot easier to drop. Yeah. So what are you thinking about for that with your garden? I have no idea. Okay, so... (laughs) So my problem is that, yes, if I plant a bunch of seeds, which I'm going to because I love growing vegetables, if I plant a bunch of seeds in two to three months, I'm going to have an overflowing veggie garden and it's going to need watering and weeding and mulching and, you know, fertilizer. And I'm going to keep having to turn the compost. And it's just like, if I'm not hyper fixated on it, I need to have some kind of future planning in place that allows me to do the bare minimum, Mm -hmm. right? So my thought was drip irrigation for the veggie beds for watering. That's on a timer. So when I no longer feel like going out there every morning and just checking on all the plants, the water still, they still get watered. Perfect. Like I'm, I'm thinking that, but also like, it's not just the veggie garden, right? Like my woodland project where I go down and I rip out invasive plants and try to cut back dead limbs and everything. Like when you're restoring a woodland or a meadow, you don't want to leave a bare patch because the invasive plants will just 
resurge and take that bare patch back over. Yeah. Right? So if I am suddenly no longer hyper fixated on removing invasive plants, what the heck am I going to do? Like, <laughs> this woodland is not going to be happy if all of a sudden I'm just gone. Right? So I, that's one thing I'm struggling with. I think, like, I could bring a handful of wildflower seeds with me every time I go on a walk and just scatter them if I needed to. But like, there's, there's only so much I can get my brain to do when I'm no longer hyper fixated. And this is like a really big problem for me. I feel like it's a big problem for a lot of people. Yeah, like, in specific, and this specific case, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's great that you are helping the woodland. But If you just abandon it tomorrow and, like, those invasive plants come back, you'll still have done good for that space. And, like, what you've done for it isn't defined by dropping it at some point. It's defined by what you do during it. But, like, more in general, yeah, it's great to be thinking about doing these things, like, sustainably or in a way that the impact is lasting in the way you want it to be going in. Yeah. I guess... I guess the problem is, is that I don't know how to make that impact lasting, especially in these cases where it's like, it's a sick, this is a cyclical hobby, right? Mm -hmm. My veggie garden will grow and die back and grow and die back as long as I keep tending it. But if I stop tending it, it's just going to become a bare patch of earth. Yeah. Right. And the woodland, like it was doing okay before I started pulling out invasive plants, but there's still kudzu out there. There's still Japanese honeysuckle. It'll take over if I stop. But I'm also not going to live here forever. Mm-hmm. So, I, like, I don't know how to make that impression lasting. And it's something that's been really bugging me because I can feel the hyperfixation ending. Not, not because I'm not interested in native plants or helping the woodland anymore, but because something about the way my brain fixated on this is I'm expending a lot of energy out of the gate. And keeping up that momentum is is not going to happen. Like, it's almost like I started sprinting at the beginning of a marathon. It's tough to take a problem that's like society scale. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> the environment needs, yeah. needs some care. And it absolutely uh, does. Our relationship with the land is absurd in modern society. But... When we take on these things that are really societal scale problems, there's only so much we can do as individuals. And I don't know, that's just so hard for me because I don't want to accept that. I want to be able to solve the problems (laughs) I come across and I can do my part. I I can try my best, but. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I've been thinking about lately is like the environment and invasive species, especially, are a are not are, are not a local issue. Like it is still legal in the United States to plant invasive plants in our gardens. Mm-hmm. Which then, you know, like um one of them spreads by birds eating this uh which one was this? Thorny olive. Birds eat the berries in the winter and then as birds do, drop the seeds when they drop everything else they've eaten elsewhere. And the plants spread. And it's like, these ornamental plants that we keep planting in our garden, they're invasive and we know it. And the reason that we can still plant them is because the only way to get them banned right now is for the president to sign an executive order. And let's be honest, 
that's not a big deal right now compared to everything else. There's a so, certainly some other key things I would like to see him sign, which he has not. Yes, exactly. There, There's a lot more systemic change that we want instead of, you know, individually signing, hey, stop planting multiflora roses in your gardens. Like, so... They're like, okay, so yeah, invasive plants are not a local issue, but like, at the very least, you can go out and you can pull the invasive plants out of your local woodland. You can make sure your backyard doesn't have invasive plants in its gardens. Uh, Heads up, everyone. Mint, if you plant it in the ground, invasive. Don't do that. Put it in a pot. Anyway, (laughs) like, just got real riled for a second because people don't know that. Um, And it's just like, yeah, I, I like I built up a lot of steam getting into this project. And one thing that is kind of good is like some of my neighbor neighbors have been noticing what I'm doing. And so they ask me, you know, like, oh, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm pulling up a bunch of J- Japanese honeysuckle. Here's what it look, looks like. If you see it, you should pull it. But what ha- what happens when I no longer have the energy? Like <laughs> when it's 97 degrees out and I cannot physically lift my arms to cut down some kudzu i like (laughs) because it's too hot (laughs) i don't know what to do i I wish i had Uh, answers that weren't defeatist like i mean educating (laughs) your neighbors is like a huge one like giving more people the information that they need to be able to carry on that mantle that's huge yeah that is that's a good point and like i think and uh, i've thought about that i think that's kind of a superpower of a hyperfixation almost that it gives Mm -hmm. you that impetus to learn enough about the subject that you can then share that with other people. And so that the people who don't have that impulse to go learn everything about invasive species can get the cliff notes and can be spread to do more long-term good because your hyperfixation exposed those, exposed that for them. That is true. Yeah. And maybe, maybe, maybe the answer here is, is um, instead of working alone and pulling out kudzu on my morning walks or, you know, uh, what was I doing the other day? Oh, trimming up a wax myrtle. You know, they grow native here. They're awesome. You can make candles from the berries and the bayberry leaves that they grow. You can use like, uh, what's that spice that's leaves? Um, Bay leaves? Thank you. <laughs> I can't believe it's literally in the name. They're not the same plant, but you can use them in the same way. Anyway, like teaching people about that, maybe they will want to help trim up more bayberry trees or or wax myrtle trees because then they could, you know, if they feel like it, make candles. But like finding a way to keep my hyperfixation alive for just a little bit longer so that I can educate my neighbors, whether by posting signage like hey this is what kudzu looks like if you can cut it back if you can't like i don't know maybe we should hire some goats um (laughs) speaking of which if they can introduce um a bunch of ducks to the pond do you think i could get away with hiring some goats probably i i have no idea that is going to be very dependent on your local jurisdiction okay i'm not gonna risk it anyway Goats are really cute and they eat kudzu. I feel like we could just use them. But I love goats. Let's not. <laughs> I love goats. They're so they're so cute. Anyway, so like maybe maybe I can extend my hyperfixation by switching from the physical act of like cutting things down or or trimming things up 
and instead pivot to posting signs like, hey, this tree is a native. It's a black cherry tree. If you wait until the berries bloom, you can use the berries to make jam. Yeah, I think pivoting is a really helpful thing with it. And I also think that like, Trying to expend, uh, extend a hyperfixation is a recipe to burn out on it real hard. I've certainly done that mm-hmm. before where I've like had, try to think of an example, but something I'm really interested in for a while. And then I'm just like not that interested in it, but I feel like I should be. So I keep pushing. I'm just like, I don't want to look at that ever again. Yeah, uh, I did that to myself with sewing in 2019. Mm. I was like, I have to make everything. I don't have to make everything. I just, oh, I definitely had that phase. I got a sewing machine. I was like, cool. I can make all of my own clothes from scratch. Yeah. And it's like, no. Power to you if you can do that. But I could not. <laughs> like, especially because I was in a phase where I had just refused to go shopping for like three years and I suddenly needed everything. Like, yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't good. <laughs> it is something like... The reasons to want to do that, especially for sewing, are the modern clothing market is so bad sustainably and so bad humanitarianly. Like, there's just no ethical way to buy clothes. Pretty much full stop. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there are companies out there that are like, we are sustainable because our clothes are made with plant-based fibers. And it's like, great. Are you making sure the people harvesting the plant-based fibers are paid enough? Are you making sure the people are so, who are sewing them are are, are paid enough? Because I bet they're not. It's capitalism all the way down. <laughs> yeah. Even if you're charging me $200 for a dress, I have a feeling not a lot of that is going back to the person who actually sewed the dress. Indeed. Yeah. Which actually leads us into our next topic, in fact, because I've been one of my hyperfixations that lasted forever and is probably going to last for a long time is thinking about sustainability and how to be more sustainable. And also um, I wrote down naturalism. I don't know how I got to that word, but like trying to make sure things in my life are not made from plastic is kind of what I was going for (laughs) or made by someone who's not being paid enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, For example, Izzy, one of my other hyperfixations that will probably end soon because I can tell it's coming to the end. I've been mending everything in my house that I can get my hands on, including like blankets we barely use, clothes that my partner would have tossed because he thought that they couldn't be saved, like everything. Pairs of jeans I haven't worn in three years. I'm mending them because they still fit, but they just had a hole somewhere. And I love it. It's really fun. (laughs) Um, That's something that, like, I feel like most people forget that they can do. Like, yeah, definitely. Like, we're in such a culture of disposability. Yeah. The expectation of something damaged, almost no matter what it is, is that you'll replace it and not repair it. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's that um oh goodness Ugh. planned obsolescence too has yeah. become a thing where your whatever wears out after x years so that the manufacturer can sell you another one um purposefully sometimes not purposefully sometimes purposefully but 
this is another problem with the with the fashion industry lately is that everything is made so poorly it falls apart a lot faster and it's because they want to be able to sell like t-shirts for five dollars you know it's just like zara for example one of the most profitable Mm -hmm. most valued clothing company in the world that's constantly selling clothes for i'm not sure they sell anything for like more than ten dollars wait really like feels their their pricing (sighs) is so absurdly cheap it feels like they must have stolen the materials to make it, which honestly is probably not that far off the truth. That makes me so uncomfortable because like, okay, for our friends who don't know, the average t-shirt, right, is made out of, I want to say half a yard of fabric, right? And if it's a cotton t-shirt, cotton at the low end goes for about $5 a yard. So that, um, and that's for like consumer sellists. And if it's at the high end, it's like $15 a yard, right? And that is better quality at the $15 end, right? So you're paying, let's say $5 for your cotton to make a t-shirt. And then you are washing it, ironing it, you're cutting it out, you're sewing it together. And that can take from anywhere from like Five to six hours. Now, even at minimum wage, (laughs) even at minimum wage, that amount of time costs, what, $35, $40? And never mind shipping the shirt then overseas, because it almost certainly was not made in the country of destination. Uh, Yep. So, like, there's no way. There's no way. Um... We don't have machines that can accurately, like, all sewing, all crocheting has a person sitting in front of the machine. Knitting uh, is like 50-50, right? So there's a person doing the labor. And if they're not even getting paid $7 an hour, which is, by the way, not a living wage, um, <laughs> Oh my God, I just like can't even, how do they do that? How it's your, yeah, it can't be far off. And $7 a week is probably more close to a wage for people in manufacturing of clothing. It's horrifying. But like, this is another one where it's really a societal issue. And yeah, I absolutely believe individuals should do what they can reasonably do to reduce their impact. That we should, when we're financially able, we should buy clothes that were made using more ethical sources of labor in as much as is possible. That we mm-hmm. should like try to reduce the amount, especially of single-use plastics that come into our lives. But really, we need to be demanding systemic change to address this. Yeah, uh, like there are little things we can do at at our, an individual level, but they're not going to change the problem. They are just going to reduce your individual impact and maybe teach your progeny if you have anyone or your friends or your your community how to reduce their impact but yeah it's a systemic thing like all of the things that i do or i'm going to do for sustainability are just going to impact myself my partner my dogs my yard like they're not going to they're not going to impact someone living in india like for example where sea levels are rising and people are having to flee um which is horrifying so like i've written down all the things that i've been 
thinking about lately for modern sustainability, but none of them are at the level of systemic change, which is something that I need to reconsider, I think. Yeah, like, like I mean, something that always blows me away is that, like, my carbon footprint, which is a term I kind of dislike for reasons I might get into later, but almost all of my carbon footprint is because of the U.S. government burning federal uh, using federal dollars to burn fossil fuels on my behalf, which is like not something I can opt out of or control or really handle. Like the average American citizen simply can never get their, you know, carbon footprint down as low as people who are living in other countries, just because our government burns so much fossil fuel on our behalf. Yeah, and like even if you live in a an area that allows you to opt into um, sustainable energy for your like for your electricity, that's still only a portion. Yeah, like uh, I think my local energy supplier, if we pay a ten a ten uh, let's see ten dollars extra every month, they will um, put that money into the um, what is it the solar cell project that they're working on and it's like okay can i give you all of my money every month for you to put it into that like (laughs) can all of my bills be going to that i don't know it's just like let's all let's all work together absolutely (laughs) and like the thing with carbon footprint is that it was a pr campaign by bp to shift the blame from i think it was bp to shift the blame to consumers and consumer choice instead of corporations. And like, it has always stuck around as a way, first and foremost, to shame individuals and to distract from it being a systemic issue. Massive eye roll from both of us on that one. Yeah. It's just... Actually, this brings up a thought that I had had the other day. Um, I was mindlessly scrolling Instagram reels because... Who doesn't anymore, um, unless you don't have Instagram, like Izzy. Uh, I almost wish that I could figure out a way to break the habit. Anyway, um, I stumbled across a Hank Green reel where he was talking about um, these graphs of fuel efficiency in cars and like its comparison to weight and um, power. And there was one other thing. I don't remember. Oh, fossil fuel emissions like CO2 emissions. And it's like, there was a immediate spike in efficiency at one point, and everything else went down to accommodate that efficiency. And then slowly over time, power went back up, efficiency stayed up, uh, fossil fuel emissions stayed down, and then weight at some point started rising again. Anyway, his whole point about this graph was that the spike in fuel efficiency only happened because the U.S. government required it. Yep. We jumped like 10 miles per gallon or something in, in under a year because the government required car manufacturers to do it. It's like every time someone is like, well, if you just reduce your carbon f- footprint or if we all just tried to reduce our carbon footprint, it's like, no, no, no. This is not our fault. Like, yes, individuals make up society, but... Society at large needs to push that back down to the people. I don't know how to rephrase that. (laughs) You're not going to tell people to just stop commuting. 
they no, need yeah, to eat. Happen. They need to work. So mm-hmm. they're going to drive to the office. And the fact that car companies are incentivized not to address these issues, the fact that governments have decided to continue to build entirely car-dependent areas where in order to live in them, you must have a car, all of these compound to make it that, like, as an individual, I might be able to choose to make some trips by bicycle, but not all of them. Yeah. Actually, I can't take any by bicycle right now. Maybe when they build the grocery store just down the street, but I don't think there's a single store I can get to by bike. That's Unless insane. I bike for an hour. Yeah. It's not even that far away. It's just that it would I would have to go on back roads because it's not safe. Yeah. The the speed limit on the roads right outside my neighborhood is 45 miles an hour and I do not trust the people behind me to move around me. I don't. No, and then suburbs are so often built in a way that is designed for car safety first and foremost, but as a result of that, car drivers read those unconscious signs, the wider roads, the large medians, the space, uh, the runoff areas that have been reserved for it. And these are all signs that car drivers interpret subconsciously as it's okay to go faster. Mm -hmm. And and so even if the speed limit is a reasonable number, the construction itself encourages people to go too fast to be safe in those areas. Absolutely. I've noticed that in my own behavior. Like there is a part of my town that has a speed limit of 35 and everyone goes 40 because there's bigger lanes, you know, there's a central turn lane. It's it's a four lane road that's supposed to be 35 miles an hour, but everyone goes 40, you know, it's just, it, it just doesn't make any sense. There's also like the, you know, there are some jurisdictions that do the thing where they build a road that's meant to be 40 miles per hour, but artificially lower the speed limit. Yeah. So they can ticket you. I'm shaking my head at that. But I don't think that's the case for all of these roads. You know, some of them are built to be safe. And so people are like, oh, it's safer if I go faster. Yeah, it's it's just so complicated. And of course, here in the US, we tend not to build separate infrastructure, which makes bicycling significantly less pleasant and less safe. Mm -hmm. And just so many confounding factors. Like, what I see a lot in the north is that people will blame car or will blame the snow and the cold and the ice for the roads being shit. But it's really more cars' fault than it is here in Texas. The roads are every bit as bad as in New York. Mm-hmm. It's all about, at least as far as I can tell, it's like the repaving efforts. How often do those happen? Mm-hmm. And those have huge like, costs and emissions. Well, here's a good example. Yeah. There's an island in Canada. Um, I want to say off of Vancouver that does not have cars on it, but does have people living on it. And you can compare the roads that are on in Vancouver proper versus on the island, which has the same climate. And the duty cycle for the roads on the island is significantly longer with the same construction techniques. Just because cars aren't on it. Cars are ridiculously destructive, especially when you start going over the planned capacities for the roads. <laughs> As if anybody pays attention to those. Um, <laughs> even the city planners who, you know, make those capacities. Um, that might be one of my pet peeves. But yeah, so the systemic issue here is like we don't make towns that are walkable or bikeable anymore. Absolutely. it's And I can't fix that. No, like... Even 
even developers with capital can't really fix it because so many cases it's embedded into law that things yeah. are like single family Euclidean zoning. And uh, Euclidean zoning's kind of, I think, an interesting name because I suspect a lot of people assume it has to do with Euclidean geometry, but it doesn't. It's named after the town of Euclid, which... What? Oh, yeah. Okay. I was going to ask you what it had to do with Euclid as in geometry. No, um, Euclid was the first town to use the argument that we want to preserve the character of an area and therefore you cannot build this, I think it was a factory here. And in some cases that was good because not having emissions right next to people living places is great, but the precedent it set was for singly families, excuse me, was for single family (laughs) zoning exclusive areas in order to preserve the quote unquote feel where the feel is really just no density. I'm a little bit speechless. I I don't know if that's obvious. What about bringing, presumably the factory would have brought jobs to the town, right? Well, theoretically. So my recollection of this is a little light. I'll have to go and refresh myself on the details. No worries. My understanding is that it was a more affluent town that didn't really want working class people there. Don't even know how to comment on that because it makes me angry. (laughs) Yep. Sorry. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. Um, Do what you can for sustainability. Shit sucks. This is why I'm vegan. This is why I'm not, like, railing on everyone else to go vegan. Like, I would love if everyone went vegan, but that is so not the solution to the problem. It's not the solution to the problem, but can I tell you that my partner and I have been um, slowly introducing more vegan and plant-based foods into our meals. And at this point, we're about half and half. That's awesome. We went from having one vegetarian meal a week to half and half. Like, today we had... uh, veggie nuggets for lunch i didn't want to say the brand um because i didn't like them so i don't want to bash (laughs) them (laughs) perfect there is (laughs) there is one brand i like we tried a new brand today i did not like the new brand um my partner did so i'll probably still get him those you know but i will eat the other one that sounds like a reasonable choice (laughs) (laughs) yeah but we went like it was a it was almost like a switch overnight um he pointed out, like, hey, we eat a lot of beef. Why don't we just start switching out for impossible burger instead of normal burger? And we started doing that, and it's like, we have pasta with impossible meat. We have um, tacos with impossible meat. We have all kinds of things that we used to eat ground beef for with plant-based food now. And it's actually quite delicious. And I used to think I could never give up meat. But now I'm like, Back to, like, probably good. Heck yeah. Which is amazing. The the Impossible Grounds are, like, they're a little surreal how much like meat they are when you're cooking them. Yes, it's a little bit creepy, and I try not to think about it. <laughs> like, it's less Until creepy it's than meat, but... <laughs> yes, it's less creepy than meat, but, like, when I pull it out of the package and I'm like, this is so weird how close it looks mm-hmm. that, like, my brain even goes, don't touch it. You'll get germs on ya. I mean, you, you still might because I, I'm not sure how they make it. But, like, I'm sure vegetable germs are less gross than meat germs. And anyway, my brain is just like, nah, don't touch the, don't touch it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, that was a weird divergence. But anyway, we're starting to go, like, get better at being vegan or vegetarian or somewhere in the middle. 
You know, like we're having trouble giving up cheese because I love cheese. I love queso. Um, but we're getting there. That's awesome. And we're trying. We're trying to pick brands that we know treat their cows better when we're getting dairy. There we go. Got the word out. <laughs> um, I'm a little bit brain foggy today too. Apparently. Anyway, yeah. So like. <sighs> Systemic systemic problems can't be solved by individual chains, but do what you can, right? Yep. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to be optimistic. <laughs> I mean, I think there's reason to be optimistic. I think we have consistently seen people being more and more willing to demand change for sustainability. That's true. That is true. And things are getting better. Like... I, I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast before, but I think I've told you at least once, maybe in text format, so it's probably not as clear in your mind. But when I was living in Maryland, the first year that I was there, the bay, the Chesapeake Bay, disgusting, brown water, like you could, if you got a cut and swam, like you could get infections. But people still swam in it because it's a big bay of water and it's gorgeous up in Maryland, but also hot, so you want to dive in. Anyway, I moved to Maryland when I was in the fourth grade. By the time I left for college at the age of 18, I don't know how long of a span this is now. Um, what, eight years? Anyway, the bay was so much cleaner that we were regularly spotting dolphins in the lower reaches of the bay, which hadn't happened for decades. That's awesome. And that's just amazing right like we're we're clearly making strides in local areas it just doesn't feel fast enough sometimes no it it really doesn't it's so hyper regional it's so Mm -hmm. one step forward two step back into in so many cases but i still think there's reason to be optimistic and that for all the struggle that is going into it and for all the struggle that will continue to have to go into it there are people who are doing the work and who are struggling and yeah. And this just gave me a good idea. I think I'm going to make it my mission to start a petition for my County to start recycling glass. That would be awesome. Glass is like the easiest one to recycle. I know. And they don't do it. That's absurd. <laughs> it is absurd. <laughs> it's really, really annoying. It's like when the first couple months of the pandemic, they just stopped picking up the recycling so people started throwing out their recyclables because they they were like, we can't staff the recycling plant. And it's like, but you can staff the garbage disposal facilities. So maybe we can figure out a way to keep people far enough away that you can at least do it once a month. Like, we can make it every four weeks, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> One would hope. Uh, anyway. One would hope. Anyway, so I think I might work on that. That's something that I could do systemically when my hyperfixation for um, invasive plants ends. Indeed. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I don't know how to transition, so I'm just going to do it. Perfect. I hope I hope people laugh. Uh, we got some follow-up last time when we were talking about uh, single-family homes versus uh, communal living, things like that. One of our friends, Tony, he recommended that um, I pick up a book called – oops, I dropped my pen – Where Good Ideas Come From by Stephen Johnson. And the reason he recommended this after our last uh, episode was because we were talking about um, – 
communal living. And one of the, I think one of the arguments he said is in this book is that when people are living together, when there are more people in a space exchanging ideas, more innovation happens, more ideas come flowing forth. And that honestly sounds um, kind of like a duh moment after you hear it. Like if you have more people to bounce stuff off of, of course, you're going to have more ideas. Absolutely. Like, I know of colleges designing academic buildings specifically to encourage people to meet and run into each other in the hallway. That's genius. Now I want to now I want to know how that works. Anyway, so <laughs> so Tony recommended this book, and the first thing out of my mouth was, um, "I will have to figure out how to read this because I don't have time to read any books on my to read list." And what I really meant was, my to read list is ridiculous. Um, Izzy, I don't know if you use Goodreads. I, I do anymore. Well, you sort do? of. Okay, I'm on it. <laughs> I'm on it too because it automatically tracks the books I'm reading on my Kindle. But the what I was saying when Tony recommended this book to me was that I didn't have enough time to read because my to be read list was 1,187 books long, and I hadn't added anything to it in months because that number is useless. That's terrifying. Right? I don't intend to like, read that many books in any reasonable near-term vision. <laughs> no, neither do I. And like, I was like, I don't ever know what I want to read because that list is useless. And also because I get stressed out looking at it. And our friends yelled at me to uh, burn it all. Burn, yes. burn it to the ground. Yeah. Which I did. <laughs> Good. Good. Glad and when that. I did that, yeah, when I did that, I found that I had added some books um, exactly 10 years ago. And 10 year years ago maddie did not know what she wanted to read let's be honest <laughs> all of those books were crap uh, like, <laughs> like why did i say i was going to finish the um warrior series that is written for children it's great but i probably won't touch it until you know i want to introduce any kids i have to an awesome book about cats let's just like put that out there anyway and then on my currently reading list i had 59 currently reading books there's no way that number was accurate Goodreads, what are you doing? Like, so I cleared that out too. And so I'm starting fresh. And this book, Where Good Ideas Come From, is one of the first I'm putting back on the list to try and get myself to like actually get through my to be reads, which are on my Kindle and are on my bookshelf. And I've actually got them and I want to read them. But I just never felt like I could because I had so many I wanted to read otherwise. Good. Fresh start sounds like exactly what's needed here. This is one of those ones where I've been switching to an analog TBR to be read um, <laughs> list where anytime I've got a new journal, I have to migrate and I have to decide, okay, here's of the things that fit on a page, which am I bringing over? Which are the high priority? And I always write down a little note to myself about why I'm adding a book to the list, which mm -hmm. I think is really important. Because otherwise you just get to a title and author. It's like, I don't even know who recommended this to me. Yeah, that's a that's a good idea. I have toyed with this idea as well of like having an analog to be read list. And I might toy with it again now that you mention it, because while I can add those books to Goodreads, right, I don't actually go on Goodreads to check that list. Yeah, I never mm -hmm. did. I would add stuff to the list, but I would never look at the list. Hmm. This is interesting. I may think about this. Anyway, <laughs> like I just got lost in thought. Can you tell that we are uh, brain foggy? Can you tell? It happens. Anyway, it does happen. And I'm excited to finally have a fresh start. And I think I might 
go and make a analog to be read in this order list. Yeah, I think I might do that. Um, any last thoughts before I close this out? Nope, I think that's an episode. I think that's an episode too. Thank you for listening, everyone. This has been Above the Mess. If you want to find us on the internet, we're at AboveTheMess.com. Izzy's website is Stardust.fm. Mine is FlexPotential.com. And you can find us at Above the Mess Pod on Instagram and Twitter if you want to see us around the internet. Not that I ever post anything. That's okay. You can still find us there. Message us. Do whatever you want. Bye-bye, y'all. <laughs>